Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 40. That's where we're going to be today. We're in our fourth week of this series that we have entitled The Many Colors of God's Faithfulness, walking verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the story of Joseph. And really, as we look at this story of Joseph, just reminding ourselves how when we are walking through difficulties and circumstances that have taken us off guard and, and, and things that, that are not necessarily favorable circumstances, but in our perception are looked at as unfavorable circumstances or difficulties, that we have a choice. And we can allow those difficulties and unfavorable circumstances to cause us to rob us from seeing the faithfulness of God, or we can choose to look at those ups and downs and twists and turns almost as a prism that allows us to see the many colors of God's faithfulness put on display in a way that we maybe never would have seen them without those difficulties and unfavorable circumstances. And we see that through the life of Joseph, and we see in the story of Joseph a greater principle and a greater promise and a greater reality that we serve a God who is faithful. And so today we're in Genesis 40, and if you're new with us and you may not be as familiar with the story of Joseph, where we find ourselves in this chapter is, if you remember, Joseph was, a, was one of 12 boys. He was the youngest. He was the most favored by his father. He was given a coat of many colors, symbolizing his favoritism of his father, symbolizing his prominence, symbolizing that he was going to be given the inheritance of his father and was favored highly above all of his other brothers. And in the midst of that favoritism, his brothers hated him for it. And so what they did is they sold him into slavery, threw him in a pit, took his coat of many colors, made it look like to his father and told his father Jacob a lie, saying that Joseph was dead. Joseph is put into Potiphar's house and is a slave in Potiphar's house and is living a life of integrity and is being blessed by God in the midst of those unfavorable circumstances. Exercise the integrity that we've seen Joseph exercise throughout his life from Genesis 37 through all the way through Genesis 50. But in the midst of his integrity, he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar throws Joseph into prison, which is where we will pick up in Genesis 40, which we will read here in just a moment. But before we do, I want to get an idea of who's in the house today. So how many of you say, in my house, when it's time to go to bed, I like all the lights off? Raise your hand. Man, you guys are about, it's the same percentage. 9 a.m., there was a ton of people, more people that like the lights off than having a light on, which means we've got a lot of people in here who are not afraid of the dark. Here's why I asked that question. Because when you get up in the middle of the night, as many, some of us do, I've, I have oftentimes, and you get up in the middle of the night and it's pitch black in the house, whether that's to go to the bathroom or to get a drink of water or maybe you hear you know, one of your kids crying or whatever it is and you get up and it's pitch black in the house. Do you ever find you don't really worry about, am I going to hit something? Hopefully the Legos have been picked up off the floor. But you don't really worry about it and flip out, man, I have no idea where I'm going or how to navigate to where I need to go, even though the lights are off and it's dark. Why? Because you're familiar enough with the certainties of where things are, where things are that you're able to find yourself through that darkness. 
And that's probably true whether or not it's you sleep with all the lights off or the power goes out or whatever it may be. And I think the same thing is true in our lives. That I think we don't need to be naive into thinking that there are not many people in this room right now listening to me speak right now, whether it's in this room or it's through our podcast or you're watching this online, that are walking through what we would call very dark times. Uncertain times. Times that would cause you to, to maybe from your perception not to know up from down, left from right. But it's in those times that are dark times, uncertain times, that we need to remind ourselves with, with what we know is certain. Because in, we, what we, in reminding ourselves of what we know to be certain, we are able to navigate through those dark, uncertain times in our lives. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter 40 of the book of Genesis. And here's the title of this message this morning. It's this, your certainty in the midst of uncertainty. Like what can we be certain of in the midst of uncertainty? And so here's the idea that I really want you to get this morning if you're taking notes and I encourage you to do so. It's this idea that when everything seems to be uncertain, cling to what you know is certain. So for those of you in this room today and everything around you, around you seems to be uncertain, it's in those times that we need to cling and to run to and to remind ourselves and to learn what is certain. And so that's what I want to do this morning in this message, is just to walk through this chapter of Genesis 40 and to look at, to learn, to remind ourselves of what we know to be certain in the midst of our uncertainty. So would you look at me, with me in verses 1 through 4, and that's where we'll kick off in our reading of God's word this morning, it says sometime after this, so sometime after Joseph has been thrown into prison because of being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, sometime after that event, the cupbearer and the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was very angry with his two officers and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And I want to stop right there because we're going to continue reading through verse 8 because this first certainty, we see this in verses 1 all the way through verse 8. And here's the first thing that we need to look at, remind ourselves of, learn maybe for the first time this first certainty, and here it is. Number one, God is always, say always, God is always at work. Not sometimes, always. God is always at work. 
And I think if we're not familiar with this story, we can read these first four verses and even see the, this in these four, four verses and look and say, okay, where in the world are you getting that God is always at work from these verses? Because when I read verse four, especially, I see that the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. So the captain of the guard saw something in Joseph that was something of integrity. We saw that at the end of chapter 39. And the, God, the captain of the guard gives Joseph this responsibility to oversee these two guys. This cupbearer was responsible for tasting every bit of food that came before the king, and the baker was responsible for baking all the food. So what do you see in that? What I see in that is that God was the one who was orchestrating that. God was the one who allowed Joseph to be put into prison. That it didn't take God off guard that Potiphar's wife would falsely accuse Joseph of sleeping with her and that Joseph would be thrown into prison. That God wasn't up in heaven scratching his head saying, I didn't see that coming. That God was the one that allowed the captain of the guard to appoint Joseph to be the one to attend to the cupbearer and the baker. That that wasn't out of God's knowledge. That that wasn't out of God's control. God allowed that. And so often I can think, I, I think in my own life, and maybe it's true of you, that oftentimes we can see circumstances as being absent from God working. But what we're going to see in these first eight verses is this certainty that we need to look to and remind ourselves of and continue to learn about God that he is always working. And so when I Think about that certainty. I ask myself, why so often do I find myself doubting it? And I think often the reason why I can easily doubt that God is always working and what oftentimes leads me to doubt and disbelieve that God is always working is when I start viewing myself as the boss. So if you want to borrow this hat after the message and we can talk. But all that's what happens in my life. That may be what happen, what's happening in your life right now and you've not yet realized that when we start to think that I'm God's boss, what it does is it robs me of the certainty of believing that God is always working. And so let me say a caveat to that. Whether or not I believe that God is working doesn't affect the reality that God is always working. But I've found in my life that when I begin to doubt that God is working, it's because I start viewing myself as God's boss. Here's what I mean by that. Because when God is not working out something the way that I think he should, or God is not working out something the way that I've written on my list, or God is not working out something the way that I desire, and I don't see it, I equate that God's not working. And what's really rooted in that is that I'm saying to myself, God, you're not doing what I've told you to do. And I'm seeing myself as God's boss. And I would never utter that out loud. I would never get up here and say, oh, you want to know what I believe? I'm living my life in such a way that I believe that I'm the boss. 
I almost guarantee that you would never in your life group, guys, when you're with the other guys in your life group and you've taken time to break away and you're experiencing that mutual ministry and say, guys, I have a confession. I believe I'm God's boss. Ladies, you would never say that to the other ladies in the group. Why? Because, because we'd be ashamed of that because we know the, the, the ridiculousness of that thought. But isn't that what we oftentimes think? I'm the boss. And God, because you're not working things out the way that I want you to work things out, then I'm going to equate that you're not working because I've told you what to do and you're not doing it. And that thinking is contrary to the gospel that we trust in and we believe in. Let me show you why I mean that. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Many of us could probably quote this by heart. But I want to show you how the gospel is contrary to that deluded, warped type of thought process. Because Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved. In other words, grace is getting what I don't deserve. It's by grace that I've been saved, that I'm a sinner, that there's nothing good that I can do to warrant God's favor in my life. There's nothing good that I can do that can outweigh my sin. God is holy and God is perfect. He can't tolerate one sin that I've ever committed, which is why Jesus Christ had to come and live a perfect life in place of my sinful life. Why he had to die on the cross for my sins because the wages of my sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And he rose again three days later to solidify that salvation that I can trust in and know that I can have a relationship with a holy God and a home in heaven for all of eternity. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done. Because of his work. Because of his grace, I've been saved. And what does Paul say? It's through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one could boast. I think it's interesting how Paul uses two different ways to illustrate and to get across the idea, it's not your work that saves you. It's not your own doing. And then he says it another way. It's not a result of works. Why? So that I can boast, so that I can think that I'm something special, so that I can brag about how good I am. And then we come to verse 10, where Paul says, For we are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? His. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. You know what Ephesians 2 8 through 10 is telling me? I'm not the boss. It's not my work, it's his work on my behalf. He's not my workmanship, I'm his workmanship. I work for God. He's the master builder. He's the one doing the work. He has prepared work for me to walk in from before the beginning of time. That, Lord, I work for you because of what you've done for me. And so when I begin to think that, God, I'm doubting, I'm, I'm doubting the certainty that you are always working because I'm equating that if you don't do what I desire you to do, if you're not working the way that I want you to work, therefore you're not working, how off is that type of thinking? And we don't see that with Joseph. 
Let's look at, let's continue in verse four. Look at what it says. It says, they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed and the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in prison, each his own dream. So they have two dreams. The cupbearer has a dream. The baker has a dream. And each dream with his own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Which I just think is kind of an interesting question. Never mind they're in prison. Man, why are you bummed today? Oh, I don't know. I'm in prison. It's kind of humorous. Don't, don't ever say that the Bible's not funny. Verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. When I think of that certainty that God is always working, and man, I know that. I know that theologically. I know that in my head. But so often I have trouble applying that to my heart and to what I feel. And so I've asked myself the question and I ask it to you, man, how do I guard my heart from doubting that God is always working? Because we do doubt it. So how do I guard myself against that? And I see two things in these verses through verses six through eight. Here's the first one. Take the focus off yourself. How do I guard my heart from doubting that God's always working? Take the focus off yourself. Joseph, did he not have every excuse to sulk in his circumstances? Let's remember, he did nothing wrong. He didn't choose to be his dad's favorite. He didn't choose to be thrown into a pit. When he was sold into prison, he did the right thing. He exercised integrity, and that got him into prison. He had every human reason to sulk in his circumstances. But he didn't. And why didn't he? Because he didn't focus on himself. Because if he was focused on himself, he would have missed to see that these two guys were troubled. He would have missed that, man, you got, you're wearing it all over your face. But because Joseph wasn't focused on himself, he was able to see others hurting. See, so many of us, we walk around like this. Let's pretend this is a spotlight. We walk around like this. Everywhere we go, we got a spotlight right on us. We, most of us, are, are completely oblivious to it. No one else is, but you are. And we walk around with a spotlight on ourselves, and so we make an appointment and we're hanging out with our girlfriends at having coffee or having lunch, and the spotlight's all on you. And it's all about you. Guys, you go out and do whatever guys want to do, whether it's to watch sports, go hunting, whatever, whatever it is. I don't know what you're into and your guys are into. But wherever you're at and you're chumming it up and you're talking about what's going on and it's all about you. You got the spotlight all on you. Let me tell you how I'm sulking in my circumstances. Now listen to me. In saying that, I'm not minimizing any person's circumstances in here. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But we're walking around 
and the spotlight's always on us. And when the spotlight's always on us, we do have a tendency to sulk in our circumstances. And when the spotlight is always on us, we miss out on the many ways and opportunities that God is placing in front of us so that we can see the reality, the certainty that he is always working. And I love that we see in Joseph this principle that, man, how do I keep myself from doubting that God is always working? Let me take the focus off myself. It's a principle we find in the New Testament. I think of Philippians 2, chapter 2, where Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that let's think the way that Jesus thought. And he says, let not, let, let's not think always on our own interests, but let's also look at the interests of others. And then Jesus is given as an example, and it says, Jesus emptied himself He left his home in heaven. He came down to grow as a helpless baby and to experience what I experience in life. He emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. Take the focus off yourself. And when I take the focus off myself, what do I do? I then put the focus on God's character. That that's how I guard guard my heart from believing, from disbelieving that God is always working. I said, man, I'm getting the spotlight off of myself and I'm putting it on the person that deserves it. I'm putting it on God's character. Because Joseph never lost sight of who his God was and what his God could do. We, many of us, know the end of the story. We know how the story ends, and so we walk through these verses, and we look, and we're like, yeah, that's great for Joseph, because I know how it works out for Joseph at the end. Can can I just, can can I click the light bulb on and remind you of something? Joseph didn't know the end of his story. Joseph didn't know how his story would end. He didn't say, well, because I know how it ends in chapter 50, this is the way I'm gonna, gonna live. Joseph didn't know the end of his story. Just like you don't know the end of how those dark circumstances are going to work out. But what do you know? You know that God is always working. Here's a second certainty. And it's found in verses 9 through 19. God is always giving you what you need when you need it. Always. Key word. It's a certainty. And so in these verses, we see these two dreams that the cupbearer and the baker have. And we don't have time to read it this morning. So let me just summarize, first of all, the cupbearer's dream. We see that in verses 9 through 15. Here's the cupbearer's dream. He sees three branches. And out of these three branches, these three branches bear grapes. And so in the cupbearer's dream, the cupbearer takes those grapes and he presses them into wine and he puts them in Pharaoh's cup. And so that's the cupbearer's dream. And so Joseph gives the interpretation that's given, him, given to him by God of what that dream means. And so Joseph tells him, hey, these three branches represent three days. And here's the great news. In three days, you're going to be released from prison and be back in your position. That's awesome news. 
And so after he tells the cupbearer that dream, Joseph also asks that cupbearer, hey, you're going to be released in three days, so would you remember me? Because after all, I'm in here for something I didn't do. So would you remember me? And the cupbearer gives assurance that he will. So once again, let's put ourselves in the story. So imagine, I don't know the proximity of this prison cell and where Joseph is with these two individuals, but the cupbearer goes first and hears this awesome interpretation of his dream. So can you imagine what the baker's thinking? Woo, I can't wait to hear my dream and what it means. And so what's the baker's dream? The baker's dream also involves the number three. But instead, the baker has this dream that he has three baskets that he's carrying on his head, which to us seems crazy, but that's how they would carry things back then. We, still, we see that in third world countries today. And so that baker's carrying three baskets on his head, but the top basket is filled with baked goods. And with the baker's dream is birds are coming and they're eating out of that third basket that's on his head these baked goods. And so can you imagine the baker, hey, Joseph, tell me what it means. Tell me what it means. Do I get three days? I'm out of here too. And Joseph gives the interpretation, but it's a little bit different. So the interpretation for the baker's dream is, yep, in three days, your prison sentence is going to end, but it's going to end because you're executed. Much different, is it not, than the cupbearer's dream? And just as a caveat, thinking about what we looked at in chapter 39 about the importance of integrity, don't you even see Joseph's integrity in this passage of Scripture? Because Joseph doesn't say, man, that's a horrible dream. I'm not going to tell the baker at all what God has revealed to me. No, Joseph just shares what God has given him. What integrity, what amazing integrity that's found in that, is it not? But here's why I believe These two dreams and God giving Joseph the means to interpret those dreams. Why I believe it reminds us of the certainty that God always gives us what we need when we need it. Is because of a principle that says that God's promises and God's purposes are not void of his provisions. God had a purpose for Joseph. And even though in the time Joseph didn't know what that purpose was, I'm sure Joseph thought, man, I had these two dreams when I was with my dad. And whatever came of those dreams, remember, Joseph doesn't know the end of the story. So for in his mind, those dreams are gone. They're done away with. But God had a purpose for Joseph, and his purpose was to save his people, knowing that a famine would be coming, as we'll look at later on in this series. God had a purpose to preserve his people. And because God had a purpose by which he wanted to use Joseph, his purpose was never going to be void of his provision. And God's purpose for you is never going to be void of his provision. And if God has called you to something, he's going to be faithful to provide so that you can fulfill that calling. He's going to give us all, always what we need when we need it. It makes me think of Philippians 4.19 where Paul says, same book as Philippians 2, and my God will supply Every need of yours according to the riches in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul's doing there? 
is he's saying the certainty that we can have in knowing that God will always give us what we need when we need it, that God will, that my God, my personal God, your personal God will supply every need of mine. What is the means by which he will do that? What do I look, look to to have that certainty and that assurance? It, it's the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Once again, he's going back to that if your God loved you enough to save you, and your God loved you enough to give you a home in heaven that awaits you, will he not also meet every need when you need it? Because as much as I need to believe in the certainty that God is always working, that he's the master builder, I also need to claim the certainty that God always gives me what I need when I need it. And the certainty that's found in that is not only looking at God as the master builder, but also looking at God as my heavenly father. So when I look at my life today and I'm like, God, I'm tempted in every way to believe that you're not working because you're not working in the way that I believe you need to right now. That God, I'm praying for this need, but you don't seem to be supplying in the way that I think you should. Then what I need to bring myself back to is not that God doesn't always give me what I need when I need it. But I need to bring myself back to the reality and say, God, maybe that's not what I need most right now. Let me trust that my heavenly Father knows better what I need than I do. So if I'm praying, God, would you give me that new job? God, I'm not happy where I'm at right now. I'm not feeling fulfilled where I'm at right now, but you don't seem to be supplying or giving me opportunities for a new place at work instead of getting frustrated at God for that, which is so easy to do. I know it's so easy to do. But instead of being consumed with being frustrated and doubting that God will give me what I need when I need it, maybe I need to say to myself, God, maybe the reason why you haven't done that the way that I desire up to this point is because you want to meet my need in a greater way. You want to do something in and through me to grow my trust in you in a greater way. Or God, I've been praying so long that you would change my husband or change my wife in, in this way or that way, in their behavior in this way or that way, and we're getting frustrated because we don't see them, seem to see God working in a tangible way. But let's not cause ourselves to believe that God isn't giving us what we need when we need it because he's, maybe we're forgetting that he's giving us the strength to walk through that difficult trial because he's growing in and through us a deeper trust in who he is. And his character. And we could go on and on with scenario. But it's in those uncertain times. It's in those dark times. It's in those times when all the lights seem to be out. That we need to bring ourselves back to what we know is certain. So that we can navigate through the things. That we're walking through. Here's the third truth. And it's found in verses 20 through 23. Let's finish out this chapter. Look at what it says in verse 20. It says, On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and filled up the, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. Man, if there was not ever a difference in context of what lifted up the head... Of these two guys, I don't know if it can be, couldn't be clearly, more clearly seen in this passage of Scripture. 
But verse 21, it says, He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Did you see? Did you see what, I, what we see there? God did exactly what he said he would do. He did exactly what he said he would do. God told Joseph, Joseph, you tell them, and in three days, they will be released from prison. Cupbearer, that's what happened with the cupbearer. That's what happened with the baker. God did exactly what he said he would do. It just drives home the principle of, again that what God's word says can be trustworthy. Let's continue reading. Let's finish out. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand. Verse 24, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Can you feel the emotion in that verse? Like put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Time and time and time again, Joseph lives his life with integrity. And circumstantially what we see is Joseph time and time again faces disappointment. And I don't want to make Joseph to be some superhuman superman because he's not. But we don't have anywhere recorded that Joseph is consumed with anger towards God because God isn't working the way that he thought. And what I see in these last verses of this chapter is this third certainty, and here it is. God is always on time. He's always on time. He's never late. His timing is always the right time. And I can have that certainty today. I can have that trust today. I can believe that without a shadow of a doubt today because I know my God doesn't lie and neither does yours. And let's be so careful this morning that we don't put on our boss hat and, and trip ourselves into thinking that God works for us because when we put on our boss hat, you know what we start to believe? We start to believe that God does lie and we equate that God does lie when God doesn't do things the way that we want. When we start thinking like that, we're starting to think we're the boss. But God doesn't lie. God wasn't lying to Joseph here. Why? Because there's a certainty that we all can know that God is always on time. And the anchor to that certainty, once again, is my salvation. My salvation. We could all pop up here at different times and share our grace story of how Jesus Christ saved us. And when we look at that, we could say, man, God was on time. It was the right time. It was exactly God met me where I, where I was at when I needed him the most. Every person has that story because God doesn't lie. And that's why we can trust that, is, that he is always on time. Titus 1-2 says that. Listen to this. A faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. That I have a faith and a knowledge that of my hope that is found in eternity with God forever in heaven. And I serve a God who does not 
lie promised before the beginning of time. There it is, black and white, through the mouth of God, through his servant Titus. But here's another reality that causes me to believe the certainty that God is always on time. Not only that God doesn't lie, but God never forgets. Some of you right now are like, man, I feel just, I, I can identify with Joseph because this person told me that this would work out. That they were going to do this, that they were going to do that, that they were going to give me this promotion, that they were going to do that. My husband said he was going to do this. My wife said she was going to change and do that. Whatever it is, this person said this, this person said that, and you haven't seen it come to fruition. And you're like, seriously? Like, does God even remember me? Is, I, is God even at all, like, on time? He seems to be late. It seems to never be working. No, 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 no. I forget. You forget. I fail. You fail. God never forgets. God never forgets. And what I've found is that in that time of waiting that God has me in, what he's doing is he's refining me in that time of waiting to cause me to realize, God, my ambitions, my goals, my dreams, what I believe I want to accomplish for you, that it's in that type of time of waiting that God is strict, stripping me from anything about those things that would be for my glory. And he's refining me in such a way so that my life would be more and more fixed on his glory. Think of Job 37, and I can't think of a person that signifies trusting the certain, certain things of God in the midst of uncertain times in Job. And Job says this, which backs up what we're looking at with Joseph, that God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says, do the snow fall on the earth and do the rain shower be a mighty downpour so that the men he has made may know his works. He stops every man from his labor. Stop fighting God. Stop fighting and believing that he's always at work, that he will give you what you need when you need it, that he's always on time. Stop fighting it. You know, my research for this message this week, I came across this plant. And it's called the Chinese bamboo tree. And what's interesting about this plant is that it takes five years for this plant to ever break through the soil in which it's planted in. And the reason why it takes five years is because in that fifth year, when that bamboo plant shoots up through the soil that it was planted in five years ago, it grows 80 feet in six weeks. And so when I look at that, I'm like, man, can you imagine? Like, I don't have a green thumb. We don't have a lot of plants in the Pereira house. But if I did and I planted that plant and not knowing what was going on and I planted that thing into the ground and I went week after week and I made sure that that toil or that soil was tilled and watered and fertilized and I look at me like, man, what in the world? This plant, like I got some bum seeds. When after a month, nothing. After a year, for sure nothing. 
two years, three years, totally forgot that I even planted it. And all of a sudden in that fifth year, that thing shoots up 80 feet in six weeks. And why did it sit what we thought and what I would think would be dormant in the ground, not showing any signs, is because the maker of that plant knew that in order for that plant, when it shot up and grew 80 feet over six weeks, he knew that in order for it not to topple over, it needed a strong support system in the ground. And so in those five years when nothing was being seen on the outside, those roots were growing deep and they were going wide because the maker of that plant realized that that's the way that it needed to be in order for that plant to stand tall. Listen to me. Don't judge God based on your circumstances. Because it's in those times where you don't see God working out the things that you thought he should. And it may seem to, the, to your eye that God isn't doing anything. I'm telling you, he's always working. He's giving you what you need when you need it. And he's always on time. He's growing your roots deep and he's growing them wide. Because he wants to do something in and through you that's immeasurably more than you can ask or think. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And if he causes one dream to die so another one can give birth, he's doing that because he's about his glory and he wants to do something so much greater than what you could imagine. He wants you to stand tall. He wants you to shoot high to give him glory. And so he's growing your base strong. And let's not walk out of those doors disbelieving and the certainties of who our God is. But let's walk out of those doors holding on to the things that we know are true so that we can navigate through the things that are uncertain.